Wednesday, Women in Diplomacy listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnicht, and I care deeply about protecting this beautiful planet that we live on. So I'm very excited to announce a special Earth Day series. We are going to delve deeper into multiple facets of environmental diplomacy. First up is our interview for this episode, Jody Bailey. She is program manager of the International Affairs Program at Yosemite National Park, which is actually my home park. That's the national park that I grew up closest to. So I am super psyched to hear more about her story, how she got there. And she's also going to share with us the ins and outs of what we call park diplomacy. You know how on special holiday episodes, I always try to research and give you a summary of what this day was about? Well, as I started researching Earth Day, I realized I had no idea it had such a robust history. It is an annual international event that celebrates support for environmental protection. Its history involves peace activists, a United States senator, and of course, UNESCO. And on this very day, one year ago, April 22nd, 2016, the historic Paris Agreement was signed by 175 world leaders, officially entering into force the largest climate protection treaty ever. To learn more, I recommend you check out earthday.org. And in the meantime, stay tuned for future episodes. We're going to jump into learning more about forest diplomacy, water diplomacy, environmental finance, and of course, some more climate diplomacy for you coming from the Arctic and the Pacific Islands. Also, find us on social media, The Foreign Policy Project. Feel free to tweet and message. I want to hear from you what episodes you'd like to see in the future. Thanks so much for being such amazing listeners. Hi, Jody Bailey. Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. Hi, Kelsey. Thank you for having me on your program. We are so thrilled to have you here. You are the manager of the International Affairs Program at Yosemite National Park. Can you tell us what does that mean? Well, Yosemite decided a few years ago as part of a strategic strategic planning process that we wanted to be sort of a leadership campus for the Park Service. Because this park is big, we have a lot of staff with all kinds of expertise that you don't necessarily have at smaller parks. We have a lot of capacity, so we launched an effort to create a robust international affairs program. That It's got three parts to it. We have a sister park program. We do tech, short-term technical exchanges. And then we also host a lot of visiting delegations. We probably get about 50 visiting delegations a year. Wow. From where? All over? So the visiting delegations come from all over the world. Um, We get a lot of folks from Asia right now, Korea and China. China in particular is trying to develop its own national park service. They don't yet have an organization that's kind of the overarching management organization. They've, they've been managing their national parks on more of a local or regional level. So they're looking to develop a more systematic approach to their management. Um, we've had people from Brazil, from various countries in Latin America, from 
Spain, from the United Kingdom, Australia, all over. So what does a typical day at your job look like? Oh, I, I have to laugh. I consider myself a juggler, so I, I never quite know what my day will be like. Um, for example, just this morning, I got an email from somebody who's organizing a, a group of Chinese visitors who want to come at the, the beginning of May. Yesterday, I had two Korean park rangers appear in my office who were wanting to talk to people about our safety programs and some of the education and interpretation things we do here in the park. So I, I never know who's going to show up in the office. Um, and there's also a lot of paperwork involved. If we want to send people on an international exchange from the Park Service, um, you know, as, as representatives of the, of the federal government, we have quite a paperwork process that we have to go through. So there's a lot of preparation around that. And we have to have a lot of lead time to make those things come to fruition. And this program is fully supported through grant funding. We don't use any federal money at all to support it. So I'm often doing some grant writing and working on reporting and, and managing our funds. So it's a big mix of things, but mostly behind the desk. Okay, that's that was going to be my next question is what percentage of your time do you feel like you kind of spend, quote unquote, out in the field? Not nearly as much as I'd like. I mean, any, you know, you come to a national park and you fall in love with a place like this and you, of course, want to spend as much time as you can outside, but it just doesn't always work that way. Um, I do try to get outside most days, at least for a walk, if nothing else, but when we have visitors come, it, it provides me an opportunity to get out and show them around a bit and, you know, introduce them to the park. And it can be so exciting for folks. We recently, in fact, two weeks ago, we hosted a fellow from one of our sister parks um, from Ngorogoro Conservation Area in Tanzania. He's an elephant researcher, and he came here to learn a little bit more about how we monitor our wildlife. So folks from our wildlife team who were specifically with bears and use a lot of radio telemetry equipment, we're able to help him out a lot. And, you know, as, as part of the deal, I also try to make sure that, you know, they get to get out and have a little fun too. So we get them up to the snow or something that maybe that they're never going to see or have never seen before. And he, I had to laugh because he said, you know, you know, at home we have these, you know, I was going to talk about waterfalls and, you know, we have these little, these little things where, what you might call a creek, we would call a huge river. I mean, it's just amazing. He'd never seen anything like Yosemite's. Like, I'm not going to ever say that we have waterfalls in our park again after after seeing Yosemite Falls. So it's just exciting to be able to help people from other countries and to learn about what they do. Yes, what dynamic work. It sounds very exciting. And you also mentioned that you are manager of the Zero Landfill Initiative. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Do you have a lot of different jobs? Uh, well, actually, I, I manage the Zero Landfill Initiative and International Affairs for the park. And then because I work in the office of, office of the superintendent, I get a lot of random duties as assigned. So it definitely keeps my job um, interesting. I never know what I'm going to be doing on any particular day. It's, it's never boring. The Zero Landfill Initiative is a, is a program that we started last year with help from Subaru of America. They're, they're providing us some grant funding, and the National Parks Converse Conservation Association is also providing us some assistance with it, um, kind of helping to manage the program. Yosemite is one of three pilot parks in this program that's funded by Subaru. We're trying to see how much we can reduce the amount of waste we send to the landfill from the park every single year. You know, if you think about it, most national parks are in pretty remote areas, and so we're sending our, all of our trash and recycling to, to a local county facility. The permanent residents in our county amount to probably about 20,000. 
But Yosemite National Park gets well over 4 million visitors every year. In fact, last year we set a record. We had about 5.2 million folks. So what ends up in the landfill is really coming from the park. So the, the better we can take care of the park, the better green stewards we can be of this park, and the more we can get folks engaged on recycling or choosing package, things that have less packaging, you know, the better off we're going to be. Um, as part of the program, when we started, we did a, an audit. We looked in our trash and recycling to see what was actually in it. And it turns out that in our trash, we find about 22%. That's, you know, that's a fifth of our trash. It's something that we're already trying to recycle. It's paper, it's glass, it's aluminum, stuff that could easily be pulled out. So if we can just get folks a little bit more on board with recycling, get, get them familiar with, with how to do it here in the park, I think we can make a big difference. You know, we can help Yosemite be the first zero landfill park in the, in the nation. That'd be a pretty exciting achievement. Absolutely. And I think this is so cool that this is part of your job because it's almost as if you're making sure that the impact on the park that is caused by all the international visitors is as small as possible. These programs sound like they really kind of work together in a symbiotic way. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's also true that the more I've worked internationally, the more I find that we all share common issues. Certainly the context is a little different, or maybe the funding levels are different, or the number of staff might be different, but we all struggle. How do we protect resources and make sure people can have a, you know, a good visit? How do we make sure that these places are going to stay beautiful and in good shape for, for generations to come? So we're all thinking about the same kinds of things. So it's great when we can get together and, and share notes and, and compare ideas. You know, arguably, the idea of a national park might have started here with you know, the, the initial protection of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove. But it's since then, it's spread all over the world, and it's taken all kinds of different forms. And since we share so many issues, it's really great for us to, to look at different ways of solving similar problems. We all stand to learn and gain a lot from it. What would you say to someone who might argue, we don't need this, or kind of ask, why do we need something like parks diplomacy? Well, I think, I think there are two kinds of answers. First, you know, on a, on a very practical level, we don't have the luxury of experimenting with different ways to manage things. And by engaging folks in other parks and other places who've, who've tried totally different solutions, you know, we've got, a, we've got an opportunity to learn something new from them. You know, and I would also say more and more we learned, have learned that many of the issues that we have in our parks have origins that are outside of our borders. And by learning how to work with communities and different kinds of people all over the world, I think we also get more insight into how to address some of those things. I mean, you know, climate change is one of them. The climate is changing, regardless of what you might think the origin of that is. Parks in all, all over the world are trying to figure out what to do and how can we be more connected and how can we make sure, for example, that migratory species can travel between different countries and different places. Um, you know, and then kind of on another level, I think that having a solid connection to places that, you know, people might not be so familiar with can be really helpful. For example, I'm thinking here of our sister park in, in Jordan. Jordan is a country in the Middle East. A lot of people might not know that Jordan is actually a pretty good ally of the United States in that part of the world. We have a sister park there at Wadi Rum Protected Area, 
And it's a really great demonstration of how we can have a positive relationship and really help people to understand that, um, you know, all over the world we have many things in common, even if not everything. So, I, you know, I think that has some inherent value. It, it keeps a door open to having something positive to, to talk about. Is parks diplomacy like this ever at risk of not having enough funding? And if so, is there any way that women in diplomacy listeners can help? It's very difficult for us to use federal funding to support international programs. We rely solely on, on grants to support this program. Uh, we're very fortunate in this park in that we have a very active, uh, a couple of very active external organizations that work closely with the park on a number of different in, um, initiatives. This just happens to be one of them. So we have a pretty good funding source, but we never have as much money as we'd like to, you know, to either send people or to host folks. So I, I think funding is definitely an issue. Um, and I, I think part of that is, part of that can be based on a perspective about the value of engaging outside of our own boundaries. And, you know, that's, that's clearly something that's uh, a much bigger issue than, than we can address at the park level. Um, but it can also, I, again, I would go back to saying, you know, I think it can be a valuable tool. You know, it can keep a door open between countries that might not have the best relationship ever. It's nice to be able to share something positive. And in fact, I can also point to, the, to our State Department has been very helpful in a number of these relationships. I mean, for example, they've been extremely helpful in funding some exchanges um, with a park in Malaysia. It's not a park that we are sisters to, but we've done a number of different exchanges with them. We, we hosted a World Heritage Fellow from that park for about a month. So the State Department in Malaysia was very critical in arranging those, and, and it helped that park tremendously. They happened to have some rockfall issues very similar to what we have here in Yosemite Valley, but they don't have a geologist on their staff. And so our geologist hosted them for a couple of weeks, provided them some training, and then he was able to go there later, all with State Department funding to help them figure out how to keep their visitors safe from the risk of, you know, rocks falling on them when they're out hiking. If we want to learn more, where can we find more information? We have a web page for the International Affairs Program as part of our park website. So that that gives provides some information. It's a little bit outdated since last September we hosted an international symposium here and we signed the the last group of sister parks to to hit our big goal, which was to have at least one sister park on every continent. So I definitely need to get in there and update that. But um, that's the best source for current information. And then. Often when we when we host visitors or when we do something with one of our sister parks, we try to get a news release out, and those get distributed um, to the general public. You can, you can also find those on our website. Okay, great. And, of course, you can go visit Yosemite National Park, too. Oh, that's the best. Everybody <laughs> should come visit. Absolutely. Um, okay. I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Okay. How did you come to this. Can you kind of share with us your path? What's your background? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Most of the people that I work with here in the park have been in parks for a long time. I'm not a, I'm not a lifelong career National Park Service person. Um, I didn't even start camping and backpacking until I was in my 20s, and I had a boyfriend who was, was like, liked the outdoors a lot. But once I got there, you know, I was totally hooked. You know, and I have to say, as a kid, 
I love to watch outdoor nature type shows on TV and stuff. And I got totally hooked. I, I had no idea what it was really like, but I fell in love with mountains and forest and always wanted to work on protecting endangered species. Originally, I thought that would be through some form of writing. So I started out kind of a, on a path to be a journalist. And then I got diverted into, uh, into geography, which is a great discipline for folks like me who like to integrate natural science with social science. So I spent a lot of time in academia. I got a PhD in geography and did a lot of research internationally. I worked in Latin America, mostly in, in Ecuador. But I realized by the time I got through that degree that I wasn't, I wasn't willing to go anywhere in the country for a job, at least at that point in my life. Um, I wanted a little more stability and something more rooted, I think. And as much as I enjoyed teaching and doing research, I felt there were other ways to have those kinds of things in my life. So um, I worked for a division of the California EPA as a regulator protecting water resources in the state. I happened to be in a, in a contract position that had long-term funding, but in the, um, during the big recession, the funding for that contract was eliminated. And so I was unemployed for, for quite a lengthy period of time. And I think during that period was when I really started thinking about wanting to be much more on the land management side instead of acting as a regulator or working at environmental nonprofits, which I've also done. So I started looking for work uh, at a federal agency, a federal land management agency. So I was really looking at the Forest Service or the Park Service. I thought those would be the best fits for me. And, you know, at a certain point, I had to take a leap of faith. I came to Yosemite in 2013 as a volunteer and worked for a few months as a volunteer. And then I got a low-level seasonal job. And then, you know, over time was able to work my way into the position that I have now. So if I had any advice to give to somebody, I would say, you can never be paid enough to do something you don't enjoy. Pick something that you like. Um, there's a lot of satisfaction, you, you know, and it, it, it just makes every day so much better. I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I love coming to the park every day. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Um, I meet people who are excited and happy all the time. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think volunteering is a great pathway. The other thing I would say is, you know, build relationships. Be easy to work with. Um, and follow up. If you say you're going to do something or be somewhere, follow up and do it. And and those kinds of things get you noticed. And it's it's a great way to to find just the right niche. I think. I don't have the most typical career path, you know. I mean, I tried on a lot of different things. Um, I mean, I, you know, I gave up everything. I left a very comfortable, vibrant life in the Bay Area to move to, you know, the middle of nowhere. Essentially, I, I mean, I now live in a community outside Yosemite that has about 450 people. You know, I have an hour and a half ride on a bus each way to get to and from work, but it's worth it. I love what I do. I'm so inspired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't wait to share this with I'm my... such a nerd. I'm such a geek. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is so great. I am geeking out right along with you. So what have been the biggest challenges of your job, life, career, and how did you overcome them? That's a tough question. I think the biggest challenge for me has been having faith in what I really wanted to do and sticking to sticking to it along the way of sort of ending up where I am now. A lot of people suggested that maybe I was holding out for something perfect or, you know, maybe my goals were a little bit too lofty. Um, I think far too many people settle for having a job they don't really like. 
And that just doesn't seem like a great way to live to me. Um, there's so much uh, it, that happens in life. It's kind of happy accident. You just have to keep your eyes open and be willing to, and be willing to make a change. Too many people settle. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I mean, when I, you know, when I lived in the Bay Area, I had about a 10-minute walk to 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 the local regional transportation, the you know, the BART system. You know, one or two stops, and I was at my office. You know, on the way home, I always had time to go to the gym. I could be out and exercising all the time, or you know restaurants galore, all kinds of friends. I had a really active vo- volunteer life, lots of lots of great projects to be involved in in the Bay Area. And I made a huge change. I mean, I had to walk away from a lot of things to come here. But it's so much more satisfying in the long run. And and honestly, at the end of the day, I get to make a big contribution to, to helping Yosemite, you know, to helping this park, I mean, especially through the Zero Landfill Initiative. Um, that could, that's going to make a real difference in the park. And and through the International Affairs Program, which I've helped to build here, we're actually helping parks in other places. The gentleman I mentioned earlier who came here from Tanzania was so excited to connect with our bear team and learn how to use this radio monitoring equipment. And, you know, they were equally excited because they're convinced they can help them manage elephants there much better by being able to track their movements and understanding how to keep them away from communities where they can do a lot of damage. I mean... I just can't imagine having a more fulfilling or rich life than being able to participate in some of this stuff. So it was worth all the things I traded. That's what's going on too for a lot of the listeners of this podcast is Mm -hmm. they know they want to help. They know that they have the ability to, you know, but it can be tough. Like you said, navigating, you know, the bureaucracy and and yeah, there's a lot of different signals that yeah. we get, I think, from society, like, well, it's yep. really good to stay in school and, and to be super educated or, yeah, kind of like you said, you know, it sounds like your life in the Bay Area was what some might consider ideal or maybe what we aspire to. Well, it's um, certainly an urban ideal, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the short, easy commute and, you know, it was a, it was a rich, envi- it's a rich environment. It's a great place to live. Absolutely. But I love how you're saying at the end of the day, it does matter what you do. And internally, too, you might feel dissatisfied and you might put that dissatisfaction aside if, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not listening to your heart truly. Yeah. One of the things that I do, um, especially since, uh, you know, I, I still have a ways to go in my career with the Park Service. I always ask people, how did you get your job? Do you like it? And at least in the park, I definitely hear a lot of people who like their jobs. Before I came to the park service, that wasn't so much the case. A lot of people have jobs they don't particularly like, and they just live for the weekend. And I'm not so convinced that five days to two days, that's a that's a great trade. I wasn't willing to settle for that ratio. Yes, don't settle for less. <laughs> Money is real. I mean, we all face this, you know, we all face these these equations. How do you balance it? How do you, you know, when do you cut loose and do what you really want to do? Or, you know, I mean, people with children and, and I mean, it's, you know, the the choices are real and they're difficult. Yeah, you're right. But hopefully at least if you're doing what you love and you're truly happy at the end of the day, it becomes a little bit easier. Oh, I think so. I think a lot of the other things follow from being happy. You know, it took a long time for me to get where I am, but I love it. And you you just can't, you just couldn't pay me enough money to be in a job I didn't like. 
I've walked away from some good jobs that were well-paid, um, but I, I think it's worth it. You spend a lot of your time at work, so I think having faith in yourself, having faith in your goals are, are absolutely key to, to a happy work life. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in grad school and and put a lot of time and energy into it, and as much as I liked being in academia and, and working in a university setting, uh, I also decided in the end it wasn't the right career for me. It was okay to, it was okay to change paths, you know, and I, I think probably maybe more so today than in any other time, people are a little bit more flexible about not sticking to just one path. But I would say, you know, for different phases in your life, open up those doors, see what's out there. Um, I think it's, I think it's worth it. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to RubyWorks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening. Thank you.